Amen. Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles out if you would and open up with me to the book of Colossians. Hopefully you remember me saying last week that uh, chapter 3 is really the hinge point in the book of Colossians because Paul spends the first two chapters of this letter really just laying out these wonderful, rich, deep theological truths where you get some of the, the greatest statements in the Bible about who Jesus is in the first two chapters of Colossians. Paul says things like, um, he's the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, Paul says, dwells the fullness of deity bodily. I mean, those are powerful statements about the identity of Jesus. And he also, in those first two chapters, makes some powerful statements about our identity in Jesus. So that Paul says things like, in Jesus, we're reconciled to God. The record of our sins has been nailed with Jesus to the cross. He even goes as far as to say we are complete in Jesus, meaning everything we need for life and godliness is ours through faith in Jesus. So first two tra chapters are filled with wonderful theology. But Paul's never content just to give us heady theology. Paul always wants us to see how the theology connects to our lives. Paul, Paul's not just trying to build a, a museum of great Bible verses where we'll walk around and marvel at the Bible verses and go ooh and ah and then leave and go home. Paul always wants us to see how the rich theology of the Bible is meant to affect how we live. This is, this is Dwight L. Moody's famous statement where he said that every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. And his point was that the, the truths of the Bible should, and you could even say the truths of the Bible must affect how we live. In fact, salvation, if it's real salvation, has to affect how we live. Isn't that true? Because think of what God does for us when he saves us. There's justification. That's about our position. That's a courtroom word. That means when you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, God declares you to be righteous. Not because you are so righteous, but because he sees you in the righteousness of Jesus in faith. And then there's regeneration. That means born again. Your spirit was dead. But at salvation, God brings your spirit to life. So it's not just your position that changes at salvation, it's your nature that changes at salvation. And that new nature will inevitably begin to work its way out. And the Bible word for that is sanctification. Sanctification is this process whereby God is progressively conforming us into the image of his Son. One of my favorite Bible verses describing sanctification is Philippians 2. Listen to Paul's words in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, do you get verse 13? He says, God, if you're a Christian, God is working in you. What is God doing in you? He says he's working in you so that you will. That has to do with your desires. God is reshaping your desires. He's working in you so you will and you do. 
So God is shaping your desires and God is energizing your activities. That's what God does in you. So what do we do now? Well, Paul says we work out our own salvation. Notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. He's not telling us how we get saved. He's telling us how we now live out what God has done inside of us. God has done this wonderful work in us where he has made us new people. And now the Christian life is working that out. We, it's like God has put this rich deposit of new life in us. And now our call in the Christian life is we mine it out. We pull to the surface. We live out what God has done in us. That's sanctification. And that's what Paul's going to be talking about this morning in Colossians 3. He's talking more about what the process of sanctification, spiritual growth, looks like in the Christian life. So if you're in Colossians 3, we're going to read verses 5 through 10 together this morning. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, Therefore put to death your members which are on earth. Then he gives a sample list, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Okay, three simple points I want to draw out of those five verses. Here's the first one. Number one, you have died with Christ, so put your sin to death. Look again at how he begins verse 5. Paul says, therefore, put to death your members which are on earth. That, that word therefore is so crucial in this verse. That's the connecting word. So, so Paul is connecting everything we just read in verses 5 through 10. He's connecting it to what he laid out for us in verses 1 through 4. Do you remember from last week what verses 1 through 4 were all about? Those verses were about our union with Jesus. The moment you repented of your sins and believed, God fused you spiritually together with Christ. You're joined together with Christ so that you are seen as being one with Him in His death and burial and resurrection. Paul even said last week, Christian, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You are spiritually in Christ who's seated at the right hand of the Father. And Paul says one day Jesus is going to appear. And when he appears, we're going to appear with him. So we're fused together spiritually with Jesus. And we don't have that because we've done such good works to earn it. That is ours by grace through faith. The moment you gave up living for yourself and you put your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf... God fused you together with Jesus so that you died with Jesus at the cross. The old you, Paul is saying, has already died. He said it. Look back up at verse 3. He said it very bluntly in verse 3. Speaking to Christians, he says, For you died. 
That means the old you died when you were converted. The you who, the you who lived for sin and self. The you who once had no interest in knowing God or obeying God or worshiping God, that you is now dead. So, Paul says in verse 5, you must now put to death your members which are on earth. So his point is, you and I have died to our old lives. So the Christian life, part of it now is, it's this ongoing practice of putting to death the practices of our old lives. So we have been counted dead in Christ, and now we are putting to death our old practices. It's sort of like we have died with Christ, but sometimes I forget that I'm dead. It's like the old me starts creeping back out of the casket. Those old desires and those old mindsets and those old habits start wanting to resurrect themselves. And what does Paul say we do when those old things creep out? Paul says, put them to death. That means don't play with it, don't toy with it, don't give it room to breathe, don't don't let your old self out of the casket once a week to, to stretch its legs, put a knife in it. The moment you see old mindsets creeping back into your life, the moment you start seeing the old way that you used to handle problems rising up in your life, Paul is saying, you're dead to that, so put a knife in it. Now that's, that's violent language, right? Putting to death. When you put something to death, that is not, not a soft, gentle thing. It is violent. And what Paul is saying is, as Christians, we don't deal gently with our old selves. It's so easy, isn't it, to make excuses? Well, that's just that temper runs in our family. Well, that's, that's how I've always been. Paul's saying, don't give your old self any quarter. Don't make a truce with your old self. Put a knife in it and kill it. And not only is that a violent business, that is a painful business. When something dies, it hurts. And Paul's saying, when those old desires, those old habits creep back up in your life and you say, no, that's not who I am anymore. I have died and my life is hidden with Christ and God. When you say that, your old self cries out in pain. It hurts. It wants it. It desires it. But Paul is saying you cannot give it an inch. Put it to death. The, the problems that you and I often have in the sanctification process is because we give ourselves so we give our old self so much leeway. Right? I'm convinced that I can keep that there. I can allow that way of thinking, that mindset. I can toy with that sin. And I know how to keep it in check. But the problem is sin never stays on a leash. We don't have the power to keep it in check. So Paul is saying, the minute you see it, kill it. See, the, the wonderful thing, one of the wonderful things that happens at salvation is the power of sin over our lives is broken. That's wonderfully good news. We sang about that in part this morning. So that means, as a believer, I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I'm not powerless in this battle against sin. The power over, of sin over my life is broken now for me in Jesus. The power is lifted, but sin has not been removed. So, so I have a spirit in me now that is alive. I want to know God that, that aches for Christ's likeness. There's a spirit in me that is alive, but I still live in a fallen world. 
And I still have a broken body. And listen, I still have years of habits that create ruts in our lives of thinking in wrong ways and believing wrong things and living in wrong ways. And it's so easy for my life to slip back into some of those old ruts. I still have a fallen flesh that wants to do things that don't please God. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, said that um, over the centuries that mankind has thought about our bodies in three different ways. He said there's, there's the old pagan ascetic view that basically said our bodies are bad. Your spirit's good and everything about your body's bad, so your body is just a prison for your soul. They're just, just rotting skin sacks. Nothing good about your body. And then Lewis said that there was the sort of neo-pagan view of the body that said the body's all there is. All there is is the material world. And so all of life is about shaping your body and pleasing your body and sculpting your body and enjoying your body and impressing people with your body. So life is all about your body. And then Lewis said there's a third position, which he said is what Christians should view, how Christians should think about our bodies. And he said it's summed up in the words of Francis of Assisi. And Francis of Assisi referred to his body as brother donkey. And that's a good description. Lewis said that's how we should think about our bodies. The donkeys have been used to do all sorts of good things. They're very able, capable animals. You can do lots of tasks with bodies, but donk with donkeys, but, but donkeys are also unbelievably stubborn and can be hard to work with. And sometimes bo- uh, donkeys bite and sometimes donkeys kick. And Lewis said that's, that's how we should think of these bodies, that they're given to us by God. They're one day going to be redeemed fully and glorified. But right now, a lot of this life of sanctification is about subduing brother donkey so that we can mature into Christ's likeness. Or maybe here's another way to think about sanctification, perfect for this time of year. So wasn't it good to walk outside this morning and feel a little bit of cool in the air for the first time? And you know with that, that means over the next month or two that the, the trees are going to start shedding their leaves. But you've noticed, right, that even when trees shed their leaves, all the leaves don't fall off. In fact, on most trees, there will be a few leaves that hang on throughout the whole winter that keep hanging on until spring comes and the sap rises and, and new growth starts pushing out on that tree. And as that new growth pushes out, those leaves that have managed to hang on for all of winter, what now begins to happen to those leaves that hung on? Well, as that new growth pushes out, those old leaves finally begin to fall off. Well, that's a helpful way to think of sanctification. When God saved you, the old you died and a new you was created, but those old leaves don't like to fall off. There are some of those old leaves that are awfully belligerent about hanging on in my life. But as new life begins to push out, as new fruit begins to push out in my life, That's how those old leaves are finally shaken off. And so Paul is saying, here's the call, Christian. Put anything you see in your life that does not reflect the new life you have in Jesus, put it to death. This is Jesus saying in the Gospels. You remember where he, it it gets your attention where Jesus says, hey, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now he's not saying go mutilate your body. If we took, if, if you were taking this literally, we'd have a lot of amputees and people with no eyes and 
What, what Jesus is saying is, and by the way, the reason he's not saying physically mutilate your body is because the truth is you can pluck out both of your eyes and still struggle with lust because lust doesn't begin in the eyes, lust begins in the heart. But what Jesus is saying is that we have to be, listen, we have to be ruthless with dealing with anything in our lives that entices us to sin. We have to be ruthless. Anything in my life that entices me to turn away from the Lord has to be decisively, brutally amputated in my life. That's the same language Paul's using when he says that you and I have to put all of that stuff to death because the stakes are so high in this. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 8. Listen to how high the stakes are. Romans 8 verse 13, Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. I'm going to read that again. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul's saying, if your flesh rules you, you are going to die. And he's not just talking about physical death here. He's talking about eternal death here. If you spend your life giving in to your fallen desires, if your life is marked by ongoing unrepentant sin, where you're just constantly easing your conscience by going, well, once saved, always saved, you are deceiving yourself. If your life is lived, ruled by your flesh, you will die eternally. But, Paul says, if by the Spirit your life is marked by putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Because that's the mark of someone who has really been born again by God. And I should point out in that Romans 8 verse, notice how Paul says we put to death the deeds of the body. Paul says that to do that, it has to be done by the Spirit. That means this isn't something that you and I can do on our own. We don't have the power to do this, but thankfully we're not depending on our own power. Because when God saves you, not only are you joined together with Jesus, you are given the Holy Spirit. So that the Holy Spirit is the, the cord that binds you together with Christ. So you now have a new spiritual power at work in you. A power you can rely on, that you can call out to. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 10 that now because of the Spirit... Anytime we're tempted, we're never tempted beyond what we're able. But with every temptation, there will be a way of escape. That's, that's the Spirit's new work in our life. And here's the main way. Here's the main way that the Spirit enables us to put our old self, our old practices to death. Think of, um, think of Ephesians 6, where Paul's talking about the spiritual warfare that we're in now. You remember that passage where he says we're not battling flesh and blood, we're battling spiritual forces and he goes through all the spiritual armor that we're to put on for this battle and you remember there's there's just there's just one offensive weapon that we have in that battle right there's only one sword everything else he mentions is is defensive armor there's only one thing that kills okay but i need to kill the old self paul says what kills well paul says you got to take up the sword of the spirit and then he gives a further explanation. What is the sword of the Spirit? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God's Word is the main tool that God has given us to put that old stuff to death. 
I have to know God. I have to know God's promises. And those become the swords I use to stick in the head of the old man when it starts creeping back up. Right? So when you sense, when you sense that desire for greed start creeping up in your life, you feel that longing for material things as if that's what's going to satisfy you. That craving for sexual sins starts creeping up in your life. You pull on God's word. Romans, uh, Matthew 5 says, uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I pull that promise out and I hold on to that promise. I want to see God. I believe that seeing God and knowing God is better. It is better than any amount of money I could ever have. It is better than any material thing I could ever own. It's better than any sexual experience I could ever have. So that becomes the promise of God's Word, the sword of the Spirit, that I stick into this old desire that creeps its way up into my life. Put it to death. So that's, that's the principle. By the way, I'm going to spend 80% of my time on this first point. So... You can relax if you're getting nervous. Put it to death. That's the principle. Well, well, right after he gives that principle, he gives a practical application of it. He immediately, you notice in verse 5, he draws our attention to one of the areas where our fallenness most often and most clearly shows up. So what area does he immediately draw our attention to when he talks about what we need to put to death? He immediately focuses in on the area of sexual sin. Now, the background of this is that God intentionally created us as sexual beings. That's not here because of the fall. That's how God designed us. Sexuality is woven into how God made us here and now. In fact, before the fall ever happened, you remember God creates Adam and he puts he and Eve in the garden. And what is the command that God gives to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. He's not, he's not talking about planting gardens. He's talking about having babies. Right? God designed us as sexual beings. And thankfully, not only designed us, he defined our sexuality. Immediately, God told us how we're designed to function sexually. So that he takes Adam and Eve. He takes man and woman. He brings them together in the garden into the covenant of marriage where he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's sexual language. So that God creates sex as the gift of the marriage covenant, as the sign of the marriage covenant, and as one of the tools of the marriage covenant. What I mean by that is, God created sex as this powerful tool through which he melds together the life of a man and a woman. Sex is this wonderful tool by God that he uses to help fuse together the life of a husband and a wife. Sex was designed by God as a powerful thing. I've said before in sermons, this is why there is no such thing as casual sex. doesn't matter how many times you say it, it doesn't exist because that's not how God created it. It is, it is more binding psychologically and emotionally and spiritually than you could ever dream of. It's powerful and it doesn't stop being powerful if you take it outside of the marriage covenant. It's like a, it's like a nuclear reaction. A nuclear reaction inside of a power plant is a wonderfully good beneficial thing. 
But if you take that nuclear reaction outside of the power plant, it doesn't stop being powerful. It just turns into a destructive power. Well, God designed it that way. So, so we were created as gendered beings who are able to have sex and have a desire for sex as part of God's good, right design. Okay, it's how he formed us, which means that it also becomes one of the first and clearest ways where our rebellion against God shows up. Okay, God created us this way, defines it from the very beginning of the Bible, and this becomes one of the clearest ways where our rebellion against God shows up and takes shape. Don't you see this everywhere in our world? We are living in a world that is saying, God, you will not define sexuality for me. I'll decide what it is for myself. I got it from here, God. And we see sexuality overflow every bank and jump over every guardrail that God has designed. And the results are catastrophic. And I don't just mean, I don't just mean catastrophic out there. I would guess that for an overwhelming majority of people in here, that we carry scars and some of our deepest regrets from those seasons in our own lives where we have stepped over God's guardrails. But when God saves us, one of the things he does is he redeems our sexuality. Thank the Lord for that. First, that means that God gives real forgiveness, including forgiveness for sexual sins. Those are, those are sometimes the sins that feel like they carry the deepest stain with them. And the Bible promises that even that stain is removed at the cross by God's grace. And then God begins doing this work where he gives us new hearts and begins renewing our minds so that our thinking about sex begins to change. So we now understand as believers that our sexuality was given to us as a gift from God and I want to use my sexuality in a way that pleases God. Which means a commitment to chastity before marriage and it means a joyful commitment to monogamy in marriage. But the old man still likes to creep out. Those old desires still want to rise to the surface. And that's why right away when Paul's talking about this issue of sanctification, right away Paul holds up sexual sin as a test case. And Paul highlights a couple different aspects of sexual sin that we have to put the knife in. So look at the words that he uses in verse 5. He tells us to put to death fornication. That's the Greek word porneia. Porneia is sort of a uh, like a catch-all word in the Bible for every sort of sexual activity outside of the bounds of heterosexual monogamous marriage. That's porneia. That's premarital sex, homosexuality, prostitution, adultery, pornography. All of that fits into this category. Put it to death. Put to death uncleanness. That's the word for impurity. In Romans 1, that word's used to describe homosexuality. Then he uses the word passion, which might in your translation be translated lust. L lust, of course, is the opposite of love, right? Because, because love is self-giving. Love is giving of yourself for the good and benefit of the other. L lust is self-taking. Lust is self-consumed. It's using others for my own gratification. And then he uses the word, the phrase, evil desire. Now I just want to highlight, notice, 
It's not just our behaviors that are a problem. Paul's saying it's also our desires that are a problem that have to be put to death. I want to highlight that because over the last decade or so, there has been um, a move in the evangelical world as we've sort of been assaulted by the whole LGBTQ arm that's been gaining steam in our culture. There's been this move in the evangelical world to say, hey, there's nothing wrong with those desires. If you have same-sex desires, that's, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you don't act on those desires. But you see here how Paul's making the point. It's not just sexual behavior outside of that that's a problem. We have to, we have to put to death disordered desires. Kill those things, Paul's saying. Recognize them for what they are. And then he uses the word covetousness. Of course, that's breaking the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet. But here's my question to you. What does coveting have to do with sexual sin? Do you see how what Paul's doing is he's sort of digging down to the bottom of the issue. So coveting is when I desire something that I have no right to. Coveting is when I desire something that is not God's will for me to have. Coveting is the opposite of contentment. And Paul's saying that's what lies at the heart of our sexual sin. I'm, I'm not content with my spouse. I'm not content uh, with this season of singleness that God has placed me in. So I'm going to go after something that I have no right to. I'm going to set my desires on something that God, that is against God's will for me to have. Which really leads down into that last verse, that last word. All that is, the last word Paul uses in verse 5, that is idolatry. Because what I'm doing is I'm saying to God, I don't think your plan is best. I don't think you're enough. So I'm going to do it my own way. So I want you to get what Paul's doing in those words. Do you see how he starts with the activity, fornication? And then he starts drilling down through the lust and the desires until he gets to the bedrock thing that's going on in all these sins. And the bedrock thing is it is coveting and it is idolatry. And Paul is saying to us, you have died to that in Christ. That's not who you are anymore. It might have once defined your life. It doesn't define who you are anymore. God has in Christ redeemed that part of your life. So as you see that stuff creeping back into your life, take an axe to it. Put it to death. And let me say one other thing about, about sanctification in this process. Make it a habit in your spiritual life of keeping short accounts with God. And what I mean by that, and I'm just speaking from experience here, is it's so easy as you're walking with Christ, you have some struggle or some failure in your life, and you spend the next three weeks wallowing in self-pity. Or you spend the next three months feeling bad and just continuing to spiral further and further down. Develop the habit in your life of being a quick repenter. You're going to struggle. There's going to be failures at different areas of your life. Get in the practice of being an immediate repenter. Call it what it is before the Lord. Turn away from it. Confess it. Run back to the cross where your sin debt was paid in full and where the old you died there with Jesus. And don't let yourself stay there. And let me say something about the church. And when you see a group of people who are living in a 
in a way sexually that is radically different from the world. When you see a group of people who are treating marriage with a reverence that is foreign to the world. When, when you're seeing a group of single people who are pursuing chastity to the glory of God. When you're seeing a group of married people who are doing everything they can to care for and guard and protect the marriage covenant. Recognizing that what you're seeing there is not normal. What you're seeing there is the power of Jesus' death and resurrection at work in people's lives. That's the sign of God at work. Then real quickly, Paul gives a couple other reasons to put these things to death. Verse 6, he says, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. He's saying, these sorts of sins are the signs of a world that has turned its back on God. And God hates it. To the point that it is for these very types of sins that God's wrath is one day going to fall on humanity. Or to say it even more simply, these are the kinds of sins that send people to hell forever. And if you can live your life in this lifestyle, then you'll end up in hell forever too. So what we do here is no laughing matter. We put these sins to death because if these sins define our lives, they're the sign that I am outside of the covenant of grace. And I will spend my life under the wrath of God in hell. So why would we toy around with the very sins that God vehemently condemns? If I love God, why would I play with the very sins that God hates? So Paul says, verse 6, put them to death. And then verse 7, in which, talking about these former sins, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Here's another reason why you, you should put them to death. That's how you once walked. Meaning, that's the gutter that you used to live in. But that's not who you are anymore. And weren't you so grateful on that day when God saved you out of that? And so Paul's saying, why would you ever go back into that? Put it to death. Well, he says it a different way. Here's the second point. You've put off the old man, so put off the practices of your old life. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says, But now you yourselves are to put off. That's like clothing language, taking clothes off. But you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Now I want you to notice, do you see how in verse 9, Paul says, you have put off the old man. That's past tense, that's done. The old you that was united to Adam and ruled by sin, that you was put off the moment you were converted. And now there is a new you who is united to Jesus and ruled by grace. You have put off the old man. So now, Paul says, you need to be putting off, that's in an ongoing sense, you need to be putting off the deeds of the old man. Maybe a helpful way to think about it would be think of, 
Think of changing teams. So it's like you have changed teams. That's conversion. You were taken off team death and put on team life. You were rescued from the grave and hell and you were brought in as an adopted child of God's. You've changed teams. And so what Paul is saying is, now that you've changed teams, you've got to change uniforms. You've got to take off the uniform that went with your old team. It would be like, we're in, we're in football season, it would be like a player being traded from the Green Bay Packers to the Atlanta Falcons. And they show up on the first day of their new team still wearing a Green Bay jersey and a Green Bay hat. Well, Paul's saying, you've changed teams now. You got to stop wearing the uniform that you wore with your old team. You got to stop wearing those clothes. You got to stop wearing the behavior that fit the old lifestyle. But here's the problem. What happens with old clothes? Isn't it true? You have a, you have a pair of pants that you've worn forever. It's so easy. It doesn't matter how bad they look just to keep wearing them. I have some t-shirts I've been wearing for 20 years. They look like they might disintegrate at any moment. Right, but you've worn them for so long, they're comfortable and it's easy just to slip them back on and slide that old jacket. Well, Paul's saying, listen, it is so easy in the same way to slip back in to those old ways of thinking, those old ways of responding to problems, those old ways of viewing life. And Paul is saying, you have to take all of that off. Maybe another good picture. Have you kept up over the last month? with all of the uh, dress code stuff going, going on in the Senate, where I guess it was three weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, um, Schumer came out and said they weren't going to enforce the dress code in the Senate anymore. And he didn't say why, but everyone knew why. He was doing it to accommodate uh, John Fetterman, because Fetterman has kind of made it his calling card that he only wears gym shorts and sweatshirts. So he only wanted to wear gym shorts and sweatshirts to the Senate floor so they weren't going to enforce the dress code anymore at the Senate. Well, there was so much pushback that just a week or so later, they passed a resolution formalizing the dress code and requiring in part that every man to come to the Senate floor had to be wearing a shirt and a tie and a jacket because people were bothered by, by what was going on with that. And the reason they were bothered is, listen, there, there's, there are only 100 senators, right? He was one, Fetterman is one of a hundred senators. That is an honored position in our government. So it's expected that he should dress in a way that matches that. He should dress in a way that matches the dignity of the position he's been placed in. Well, that's what Paul is saying to Christians here. You have been placed by grace in this position that you didn't earn. You stand before God declared righteous. You stand before God seen in His Son. You stand before God as an adopted son or daughter. So dress in a way that matches that. Take off anything in your life that doesn't fit your new position. And just in case Paul thinks we're slow learners, you'll notice he keeps giving these exemplary lists. To make it clear, he gives another sample list of the kinds of things we need to take off. What is this sample list? Well, we're to take off first anger. That's a sort of settled, seething resentment. Then he says take off wrath. Wrath has more to do with explosions of anger. Think of like temper issues. Take off, Paul says, malice, which is just like meanness. It's just ill will toward other people that often shows up in your speech. Take off blasphemy, which many of your translations will, will word slander. It's, it's t- 
tearing apart the reputation of another person. And then he says, take off filthy language. That's just violent, abusive speech. And then he goes on in verse 9 to say, do not lie to one another. So I, th- I think all of these sins really are tied into that last phrase of verse 8. He's talking about sins that come out of your mouth. So whereas the first list we looked at was mainly sex-related sins, this list is mainly speech-related sins. So Paul's wanting us to see that our new relationship with Jesus, get this now, Christian, our new relationship with Jesus is meant to affect us at the most fundamental layer of our lives. It affects us in how we think about and engage in sex, And it affects us in how we speak to and speak about other people. So knowing Jesus affects us, among other things, it affects us in the area of sex, and it affects us in the area of speech. So think about what this means. So so if you're known as someone who can't control your temper, you fly off the handle, and when you fly off the handle, your tongue runs free. Or you're the sort of person who just... Feast on every morsel of gossip you can get your lips around. You don't care whose reputation you are shredding in the process. Paul's saying that is behavior that does not fit your new position in Christ. So take it off. Get rid of it. And I'll say with this what I said about the last one. And when you see a group of people who are trying to honor Jesus with their speech... When you're around a group of people who are very careful trying not to slander and are are guarded with their words even as they're struggling with their tempers and who speak in a way where their words are seasoned with grace and are quick to ask for forgiveness and quick to extend forgiveness, recognize that that group of people you're around, that is not normal. That is the evidence of the power of Jesus' death and resurrection at work in people's lives. So Paul says, put it off. Here's the third area. Number three, he's, he's describing the same thing in different ways. You've been made new, so be renewed in knowledge. You've been made new, so be renewed in knowledge. Look at verse 10. Paul says, you have put on the new man. That's past tense. This has happened if you're a believer. When God saved you, he made you new. You're a new man. You're a new woman. So what do new people do? Keep reading the verse. You have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. What do people who have been made new do? Well, we are being renewed. That's in the present tense. It means we are continually, people who have been made new are continually being renewed. How? Paul says, by knowledge. Don't miss that. There is no growth in the Christian life apart from knowledge. You have to know God You have to know God's truth. You have to know God's ways. You have to know God's character. You have to know God's word. And just to make a quick connection, that's why we do what we do when we gather together on the Lord's Day. We spend most of our time 
opening God's word and diving into God's word because we want to know. Not just know information, we want to know God. And what happens is our minds are renewed. Well, Paul says, we grow into his image. That's sanctification. We want to be like Jesus. And that doesn't happen all at once. We're forgiven at once when we believe. We're made alive all at once when we believe. But this process of becoming like Jesus is a day-by-day, step-by-step process that will continue until the day that we are with him. But make sure you hear me say this. But it is a process that every genuine Christian will be on. I'll say it again. This process of sanctification is a process that every genuine Christian will be on. And what I mean by that is, if there is no evidence in your life of you being renewed, well, that would be the mark that you have never been made new. Those who have been made new are being renewed in knowledge. God is determined that he is going to continue to shape you into the image of his son. We move forward in knowledge. Uh, one more thing, and then we're going to close. Notice that the way we move forward in sanctification is not by chasing a certain experience. The way we move forward in sanctification is not by finding the right emotional encounter. We move forward in sanctification in knowledge. And you see how Paul in verse 10 brings it back around to the main theme of Colossians. The main theme of Colossians is the sufficiency of Jesus. Everything we need for life and godliness is Christ. It's all about Christ. We're forgiven in Jesus. We're made new in Jesus. He said last week in the opening verses of chapter 3 that we live our lives setting our minds on things above where Jesus is. We're looking ahead to the day when Jesus is going to appear and we're going to be made like him. And now Paul is saying the whole goal of this is we want to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Christian, do you long for that? There should be an aching in your heart that you want to be renewed. You want to look more like Christ. As you see that remaining sin in your life, there should be something in your heart that is just repulsed by it, that hates it, and it's angry about it. And Paul is saying you should be angry about it. If you're not bothered by it, if you're not bothered by staying there, there's a serious spiritual problem. Man, can you say... There's a quote by, by John Newton, the, the author of Amazing Grace, where Newton said, um, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I one day hope to be in another world. But I'm not what I used to be. Is, is that the testimony of your life? Man, I'm not what I want to be. By God's grace, I'm moving in that direction. But I'm not what I used to be either. God has changed my life, and I long for this. And man, it could be that as I've been preaching this sermon this morning, that God has awakened something in your heart, that there's no different in how you think about any of these issues, your speech, how you think about gender and sexuality from the way the world thinks and acts in any of these areas. And the call of God on your life is, you need to be made new. 
You, you need to be changed. You need God to do a work in your heart. And that work is only done through Christ. You cannot come to church enough times to change your heart. You, you cannot start singing enough songs to change your heart. God does that in grace through His Son. Repent of where you are. Repent of your rebellion against God, shaking your fist at the God who made you, acting like your ways are better and you know more. Repent of that and put your trust in Jesus and what He's done. He died in your place to bear the wrath for your sin. He conquered the grave. There's new life and new power for this life in Him. So throw yourself on the mercy of the cross. Ask God to save you. And then, Christian, maybe the call to you this morning is what I said earlier. You need to keep a short account with God. Maybe you have a failure in your life. You have sinned and you're grieved over it. And you've just been wallowing there for the last three weeks. And God's call to you this morning is run back to the cross. Keep a short account. There's a Savior who forgives. And in Him, there's a real power to change. Put to death. Put on the new man. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. I'm going to give you a few minutes to pray in your seat. And maybe the prayer for you just needs to be, Lord, save me. Lord, what Paul describes here as the man who is apart from you is me. My life is lived according to my flesh. That has marked my life for years. Lord, save me. I repent of that. I'm letting go of that. And I'm trusting in what Christ has done for me. I'm asking for mercy. Call out to God to save you. Christian, repent of where you have failed. Look back to the cross. Ask God to renew your mind in knowledge.